Hello, and welcome to the RSE's Tea and Talk podcast series, a programme inspired by the coffee houses of the 18th century, where great thinkers would come together to discuss ideas and matters of the day. I'm Rebecca Woodfield, and I'm Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, which is Scotland's National Academy. Our mission is to advance learning and make knowledge useful. And to do that, we are holding conversations with some of our fellows and other leading experts in Scotland to talk about important issues and the challenges that we face as a society. You can find out more about our work on our website at rc.org.uk. Today I'm speaking with Professor Maggie Gill, Emeritus Professor in the School of Biology at the University of Aberdeen, Professor Colin Campbell, Chief Executive of the James Hutton Institute. Maggie is a former Chief Scientific Advisor, chairs the Scottish Science Advisory Council, which provides independent advice to the Scottish Government, and has a particular interest in the research policy interface. Colin is a guest professor at the Swedish Agricultural Sciences University in Nepal, sits on the Scottish Government's Forum for Natural Capital, and has a long-standing interest in sustainable development. With such a breadth of expertise and experience, who better than Maggie and Colin to talk with us today about land use and climate change? Maggie, I wonder if I might come to you first. I mean, there is, I think, now widespread recognition that the way in which we use land has a critical role to play both in mitigating and adapting to climate change. And I appreciate it's a very big topic, but but in headline terms, can you tell us about why land and land use is so important? Okay, thanks, uh, Rebecca. I start, start saying land is the basis of terrestrial ecosystems. So in other words, we have such a variety of species because the soil is so varied from place to place, country to country, but even within a field. And one of the consequences of that is what we can grow here, where I am in the Cairngorms National Park, is very different from what grows in East Lothian, for example. And in Scotland, more than 80% of our land is less favoured areas. In other words, we can't grow arable crops. And we also have very high carbon in our soils in Scotland much more than in the more southerly parts of Europe. And so we need to keep that carbon in the soil. In other words, we need to work with the land and go with what it, uh, what it can help provide for us, rather than as humans, where we seem to want to produce things wherever we want to produce them. And, and so it's very important that we learn from, from what the land can actually do. So that's why land use needs to fit very much with the context. Thanks, Maggie. And, and you talk there about working with the land, and obviously agriculture is one way that the land is worked, uh, if not worked with. And in its recent report on land use policies for a net zero UK, the Committee on Climate Change was calling for a move to, to low carbon farming practices. And, and Colin, I wonder if you could give us a bit of an insight into what those sorts of practices involve and, and some of the work you've been leading to create a, a net zero farm. Yeah, so the I mean, land in the is obviously responsible for greenhouse gas emissions, but um, it's also our biggest um, hope for sequestering more carbon. I think, um, and the way in which we manage it is going to have a fundamental impact not just on mitigating greenhouse gases, but also on how we actually adapt to the climate change that we will have, and we will have a lot of climate uh, breakdown. We've seen that in the last year, so it's really important to to get that right. Um, and you know, Maggie's already alluded to the diversity of land uses that we have and farm types that we have and the soil types we have. So there's not a single solution for 
every unit of land that we have. We have to, to look at things in quite a lot of detail. But you know, reducing the reliance on um, fertilizers, uh, reducing the energy inputs that we have when we, we manage and disturb or till the ground, all these things need to be looked at in terms of reducing the greenhouse gas emissions. But all the incremental things that we can do on farms in that way are, are going to make a difference, but they're not going to make a big enough difference. And uh, one of the things we need to start looking at is much more transformative approaches. So you know, think about how do you change the whole system of, of land management? And uh, that can mean changing the, the cover of um, vegetation, um, for example, having more trees on agricultural land, which is a very controversial subject. Um, people see that as a, a diminution of the amount of land that can be used for growing food. Um, but actually, I think you know, we have to contemplate these things. Major changes in land use have to happen. You know, the land use hasn't changed very much in Scotland. Um, uh, deforestation is the only kind of land use change we've seen, um, but it's been predominantly on non-agricultural land. Um, and to actually go further in terms of making a difference, we need to start thinking about how we get more trees on the land. So our, our Glen saw climate positive farming um, initiative is about how do we change the whole system? So extend the amount of trees that are in the, on the farm, but also think about how do we integrate the trees into the farming operations? So it's not just about shelter belts, it's also about agroforestry where you have trees at wide spacing. So you're farming and growing trees on the same unit of land. Um, and I think there is a there is a lot of synergy in that. There's benefits for biodiversity um, in that as well. And there's benefits for the livestock production, which um, you know, means that you can, for example, have shelter and extend the time at which the animals are outside and benefit from more grass. So we have to change the overall system and we're doing everything we possibly can to make it more climate positive. So you've talked there quite a number of times about sort of change and transformation and changing the whole system. Um, and about land management. And a lot of that obviously comes down at the end of the day to people. We're talking about management. So how do we how do we how do we support that change? How do you, how do we bring people with us, whether that's farmers or other people working with 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 the land? I mean, farmers um, most often will identify as their purpose has been growing food. And um, that's something they've held on to for a long time. And it's something we've we've relied on, particularly the, through the war years, you know, and with a growing population, we're still going to rely on. Um, but I think we need to recognise that they've, they've got other purposes there in terms of helping to manage our environment, helping to manage our, our nature. Um, and these have a fundamental impact on, on everybody. Um, so it's about having a vision about what the purpose of farming is um, so that it's, it's more multi-objective. Um, um, but it's also about recognising and respecting that um, what farmers do. Uh, there's a very strong cultural identity associated with farming, um, particularly livestock farmers. I think we have to respect that and listen to um, what motivates them. And uh, they are very motivated by uh, nurturing and nature. And so one way I think to actually uh, bring everybody together here is around using having nature-based farming. Um, I think it's just something that is inspirational. I think the pandemic has shown that people can be hugely inspired by nature um, right across the spectrum of society. Um, and having high nature-based farming is good for climate and good for climate change. So we need a vision about what kind of farming we actually want in Scotland. Can I just come in on that, uh, Colin, and, and back you up in terms of that there are other options that we can use for some of our land. I totally respect the fact that farmers say want to produce food. That's why I went into agriculture, because I wanted to uh, help produce more food. 
But one of the things perhaps we need to um, raise the profile of a bit more is what else are biomass in Scotland. We're very good at producing biomass because we've got rain uh, and we've got land that will will grow things with carbon in them. And there are a lot of options for those, that biomass, which are not just about food. A lot of exciting options. And I, I think there are young people going into farming and perhaps if we can show them what some of those options actually are. One of the things we looked at in the Science Advisory Council was the options for sustainable chemicals that will be needed to replace chemicals that are currently byproducts of the fossil fuel industry. Some of those can come from biomass, maybe growing different types of, of crops. Uh, sugar beet is, is one that has potential in terms of that. So I think there is there is potential excitement for creating new types of farming, and it's perhaps up to us as scientists to communicate more about that. Yeah, no, I would. I'm sorry, I would. I would, I would totally agree with that, Maggie. I think there is lots of opportunities there to diversify the the types of crops that we we grow. Um, I mean, we have to always analyse the opportunities and risks associated with that. I mean, a, a recent study about this potential for sugar beet being a feedstock for our industrial processes and maybe replacing um, synthetic plastics with you know, bioplastics um, is a really motivating and exciting possibility. But it would take up a lot of the, the current growing land and that would displace other crops. So we, we need to kind of think about the opportunities and risks of those. But totally agree, we need to look at that. Um, I think industrial hemp, is another potentially very valuable crop that we could grow in for materials that could replace a lot of the, the, the plastics and the other building materials that we have in a much more sustainable way. You talked about um, so making enabling individuals to see what the options are and communicating with them and giving, I guess, giving them the information, showing what can be done, trying things out. Uh, but obviously individuals also work within a framework and of, of regulation and, and uh, policies other, other, and um, which either incentivize or disincentivize particular practices. Um, how does our agricultural policy need to change to support that um, understanding and engagement with different options? Do you think? I'll have to start with that one, and then uh, let let Colin come in. I, I think it's it's about creating more flexibility without more bureaucracy. I'm very conscious that there was a lots of a lot of flexibility originally built into the, um, the the plans that came out of Europe, the Scottish Rural Development Plan, uh, about ten years ago, and that caused problems because the bureaucracy around it uh, made it very complicated. Lots of forms to fill in and things like that. I think if we could somehow ensure, perhaps with digital methods, that things could be tested out, that there was more opportunity for farmers to try things for themselves, but at the same time, having a lot of monitoring, perhaps using the advances in technology for um, artificial intelligence and machine learning to actually make some of the measurements so that farmers didn't have to fill in so many forms, but that could be collected centrally. I think that could potentially allow for more flexibility, testing things out in terms of use of land, because scientists I think we understand the world, but there's so much we still don't understand. And we could also benefit by learning, by analysing a lot of that data to understand a lot of the interconnections. 
And I guess that's some of what you're doing, Colin, at the James Hutton Institute is trying things out on a smaller scale that might then be um, developed further, depending on what the evidence then suggests in terms of how effective or otherwise they've been. Yeah, I mean, we, we're, we're testing a lot of the technological innovations that can make a difference, um, whether it's whether it is the remote sensing or the artificial intelligence way, ways of doing things differently, but but also testing the, the kind of land systems in, in terms of how do we have maybe a more agroecological approach and design diversity back into systems going forward. We, we And our job is to provide you know, objective scientific evidence about how well these work and how far they go in terms of delivering what we want. Um, and so and the, the technological opportunities are massive at the moment, um, but that technology has also got to be socialised um, with people. Um, and where it's about production of food, it's also got to be democratised. Uh, if you take things like indoor vertical farming, there's a really transformational technology there for growing food in indoor vertical farms, which are independent of the weather and independent of the climate. But um, if it's all owned by you know very large companies, it's not not democratised. But you know, we could take an approach where we have community vertical farms so that it is socialised and democratised. And that's actually very uh, liberating to communities which have problems around supply of food. So there's lots of ways of doing that. And it's the same with some of the other technologies. We could have um, lots of new observation systems. I mean, we're involved in installing tall towers for monitoring greenhouse gases and all sorts of other observation uh, things we have. But, you know, does everybody want the countryside to be totally observed all the time? You know, there's ethical issues about all that. Um, so we need to understand the role of people in here and, you know, what it is we're actually trying to achieve. Um, so, the, yeah, lots of opportunity, the technology, but we have to be careful to consider the, the human dimension of all of that. And I think if I can add in on the human dimension, I think one of the things uh, perhaps coming out of the, the lockdowns was more citizens out in the countryside and getting engaged in monitoring the number of bees or the number of various insects or, or whatever. So I think using citizen science both to help in terms of data collection, but actually also to engage to for people to learn uh, more about how, how nature works. I, th I think we could perhaps capitalise on that, I hope, uh, before everyone goes back to uh, visiting large cinemas and spending their time in urban settings. Thanks, Megan. And of course, you sat on the Data Evidence and Science Working Group of the RSE's Post-COVID Futures Commission, quite a lot in, in that around how people engage with data evidence and science. I mean, looking at just sticking with agriculture for now, I mean, this is and continues to be quite a, an ongoing and quite a passionate debate about the role of livestock and emissions. I mean, the uh, Committee on Climate Change called for reduced consumption of beef, lamb and dairy, and obviously some environmental groups are pressing to go much further than that and advocating for everyone having a fully vegan diet. But I wonder, Maggie, if you could just tell us a little bit about why livestock get such a bad press and, and, and is that fair? I, I've thought a lot about this because I was a livestock scientist uh, initially and uh, indeed someone that looked at what happened within a ruben and that's where the first stomach of um, sheep and cows and that's where methane is produced. And it's very clear from the science that we need to cut methane. And it's great that they, at COP there is there are a number of countries that have signed up to actually reducing their methane. And that is not, I think that also highlights that the methane is not just produced by livestock, but it's also coming from leakage from pipes. And I think it's really good that that gets highlighted as well. As to why there is such an anti-livestock lobby, I think 
because of the connection, it was always um, an amusing story, wasn't it? Farting cows and thinking about the methane from that. And therefore, it became an easy target to think about, well, if we don't have it, for, if we don't have methane from cows, then maybe we continue with other parts of our lifestyle. I think people are really thinking that they want to protect a lot of the things that they enjoy doing and they want to do into the future, which is all of us, we're humans, that's what we might want to do. But there is no silver bullet. Livestock is not a silver bullet. And actually, there is a lack of evidence that what would happen if you suddenly took livestock out of ecosystems, they're very much part of those systems that Holland was talking about before, but they're also very much part of the economic system. So livestock, uh, the livestock industry contributes 40% of global agricultural GDP. And we've seen from COVID what shocks to the economy can actually do. So I don't think the solution can be um, taking livestock out. Part of the solution is reducing the amount of methane that they actually produce. And that is happening. There have been advances in that. It is also, I think, about eating less, but that's not necessarily about eating eating no meat at all. Smaller portion sizes. When I think back to when I was growing up as a kid, the amount of meat I was offered on my plate was a lot less than nowadays, particularly if you go to, uh, to restaurants where you get, I get the same amount of meat put in front of me as someone who is twice my weight, for example. And that doesn't make any sense to me. So there should be more choice, I think, about and and, and just having smaller portions of, of meat should should be put forward as, as part of the solution in terms of that. But the role of livestock, Colin talked earlier about sequestering carbon and grass uh, very much keeps that carbon in the soil, whereas with arable crops, where all those big bits of machinery, um, if they are used on high carbon soils, then there can be a loss there. So it's it's we have to do everything. We have to be trying to have a mix of solutions in there. And frankly, I think we all have to change our lifestyles uh, in one way or another. But what what I'm happy to change is different from what you, Rebecca, or you, Colin, would be happy to change. It's up to each of us. And I think too much criticism of what other people do uh, is, is not right. It, it, I think it's a sort of defence mechanism that we are trying to um, assuage our own guilt of the things that we do. And I'd put my hand up and say, I'm sure I do that as much as everyone else. I think we have to change how we live and actually how we interact with other people and be less critical, but each of us actually commit to cutting our own personal carbon footprints the way that we want to do it, but to do it. I mean, that's reminding me of sort of conversations in the past about carbon budgets and individual carbon budgets, uh, maybe not on a formal uh, level, but actually people individually looking at actually the carbon they spend on different things and then making some choices about, you know, if you're wanting to contribute to tackling climate change, which are the bits I'm prepared to give up. Uh, and which of the bits I'm not. I mean, a lot of what you both seem to be talking about, and you both use this word quite a few times, is about a more systems-based approach and looking at the interconnections. Um, Colin, you've obviously been doing quite a lot of that in, in your work. Can you say a little bit more about actually how do we have a systems-based approach in practice? What are sort of some of the key features of that? 
Yeah, I mean, a, a systems approach is really about understanding the complex interplay of things. Um, and, you know, there's, whenever you use this word complex, everybody thinks it's very difficult. It's, it's not necessarily very difficult. You know, it's just about making sure you are you understand how things are connected and all things are connected. Um, and, you know, you can do make very simple changes in a system and have a completely different outcome. Um, I mean, the, the crisis we're facing with climate and nature is because everything's connected. So everything we do is working out really badly in terms of climate and nature at the moment. But that tells you that we can actually change that around if we get the right type of systems analysis and we make the right changes. Um, I mean, to just give you one example where we've worked with a very progressive farm, our Vicky um, farm, where um, they're producing farm-based gins and vodkas. And by just changing the crop from um, cereals to legumes, which fix their own nitrogen and therefore eliminating nitrogen fertilizer, they've been able to produce the world's first climate positive gin. You know, so it's a, I mean, changing the crop and the rotation is a pretty simple thing to do in the overall system, but it's got a completely different outcome. And uh, I, I think the changing systems is, is the way forward, actually. Uh, and that's the same for livestock, you know, having agroforestry, which is, you know, having, uh, you know, livestock production and timber on the same unit of land is a very viable way of maybe going forward. We need to test it, make sure it works. Um, but we can change the system and get completely different outcomes. Um, and I think the we haven't, we haven't even really started that with that. We have for a very long time been focused on optimising things in terms of production of um, crops, which extract the most efficient amount of sunlight out of the system that we possibly can. And we've therefore not shared that sunlight in terms of photosynthesis with nature, but it's made us very unresilient. So thinking about ways in which we share the, you know, the sunlight and the photosynthesis with nature is a different system and will make us much more resilient to the inevitable climate change we're having. So it's about understanding how all those systems works. And we maybe don't need to tweak it that much to make a difference um, in some areas, but in other areas, we are going to have to have fundamental land use change to make it work. And the system's obviously also global um, as well as what happens in an individual yeah. country. Maggie, you've done a lot of your work overseas and being involved in a lot of international organisations looking at this. Are there any particular areas or initiatives that you think we can learn from or that we should be taking more, paying more attention to? I, I think in developing countries, it's still very, there's a lot of mixed farming, which is what used to happen in the UK as well, where you'd have livestock and crops on the same, um, on the same farm. And there were interactions between them. The livestock would eat the crop residues and the manure would be used as, as fertiliser. Now, that no longer happens for economic reasons in terms of in the UK, there are far more um, bigger farms, more specialised farms. But I think what we can learn by thinking back to that is there are still interconnections at the sector level. So, for example, even though you have arable farms that are, are producing um, grain, when that grain actually goes to the millers, a lot of it is rejected. And that rejected grain is rejected because it's not suitable for processing. We have very, very, um, uh, how would one say, very specialised processing systems nowadays, again, for economic reasons, that they are far more... Uh, efficient for the processing side, but that rejected grain does end up, up back in the livestock system. But unfortunately, the data collection around that and the interaction and the awareness of 
everyone involved in the system as to how those interactions happen at that national level is, is really not there. So I, I think we, as to build, this is building on what Colin was saying about systems. It's not just a farming system. It's about thinking our overall sectoral systems and how does the crop system interact with the livestock system when we look at it nationally. So that's one thing, thinking it is it, looking at developing countries helps us to think, I think more about those systems approaches. Another thing is that when I first moved into international development in the 90s, there was a lot more about talking to users. We had to go and talk to, we were expected to go and talk to farmers to see what technologies they actually wanted. And I think that increased um, talking to not just farmers, but also talking to consumers, much more interaction between scientists and, and what we call stakeholders, but are basically the other people along the supply chain or the consumers or the industry. I think talking, dialogue, and now that we can do it by Zoom, although Zoom still has a carbon footprint, but nothing like the travel that we used to do. I think bringing groups together, I worked on a European project and where they brought people together, for example, in museums. They brought people from the local neighbourhood. They brought consumers together with people who work in local government so that we all understand uh, what the barriers and the opportunities are at different within different parts of an overall food system. So I think those would be my main messages from developing work in development. I guess the trade-offs and and different perspectives as well. I mean, it's reminded me, Maggie, of the rural land use study that you led in sort of 2008, 2009. And, and I always remember you bringing together different groups that include people from, for example, the farming community and people from some of the environmental groups to have a conversation about what some of the issues were and see those different perspectives and then think about, well, how do we collectively work together towards more, more of a solution? Um, Colin, is that something that's happening a lot in, in your area of work? Yeah, I mean, it's fundamentally, we, we do our sciences, um, call it interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary, but that's really just fancy words for talking to everybody involved in trying to solve a problem and uh, making sure you get those views. I mean, um, we've got an event actually next week where a group of young farmers have been asked to come to our Glen Sog farm and redesign the farm. And it's done in a very interactive way where there's a huge aerial map on the wall they all get a white chalk pen and lots of stickers and they can redesign the farm if they want. But that process of talking that through brings out ideas. I, I'm a, I, like Maggie, if you get people talking, you can really solve this. And it's in all of our interests. We're all going to be affected by the climate crisis. Um, so, and, and why we do things which damage our land? Why we do things which damage our food systems? So we need to get everybody talking together to actually solve this. Um, and if we don't, we're going to see more and more polarisation, which is what we see uh, at the moment, which isn't helping us. Um, you know, getting people encamped on opposite sides of the argument is not going to get us anywhere. So we need to overcome that and get people talking uh, much more. Uh, and as you know, everybody's got a stake in this, so everybody does need to actually talk about it. And certainly there's a lot of talking going on at COP26, which is, is underway as we're recording this at the moment in time. And, and we've already seen a number of commitments, including around reversing deforestation and, and as Maggie mentioned earlier, around methane emissions. And it's great to see those commitments, but so so often where things fall down is in the implementation and in the putting them into practice. Is, is are there particular things you think that are needed in order to ensure that we do move from um, from 
the commitments to delivery. You've, you've talked about the importance of, of getting people talking and bringing everyone together. Are there other things you'd point to? I mean, I'm thinking particularly of, of how we finance some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think the when the, there's some of the announcements about the finance that's going to be available sound fantastic as well, but I, I am slightly cynical about the implementation. I mean, it, we've been here before. Uh, I mean, I remember um, Margaret Thatcher was one of the biggest proponents of that climate change was the biggest threat to civilization. I mean, how long ago was that? And what have we done about it? Um, you know, we were very, very slow to act. Um, and, and I think civil society um, is often making the point that we need to act, but somehow in the system, um, things don't happen. So if you've got the prime minister of the country saying things have got to happen, you've got society saying things have got to happen, what's going wrong in the middle there? Something's not something's not working. And, and I think it's partly because people have always got, got things to lose. Um, so we need new ways of doing that. I think things like citizen assemblies are, are really good ideas to get everybody up to the same level of awareness um, and to make recommendations. But it is about the those responsible for implementation that have to do it. Um, in the sort of private sector, I think once people have got the policies to aim at, they, they get on and do it. And um, in the public sector, we, we're, we need to have see, see the right enabling policies that actually allow that to happen. So we need to really challenge ourselves about it. Um, I, I honestly don't think things would be happening if we didn't have the civil protests that we've seen. Uh, I think they've been very effective. Um, and um, yeah, as, as much as they're very inconvenient, I think they are getting the point across. And, and, I, and I also don't think if we hadn't seen the mobilisation of the younger generations, we wouldn't be doing anything. And I think we're really challenging ourselves about why we haven't done enough in the past. I, I would totally agree with that. I, I think, um, you know, both through what you've done, Rebecca, at the RSC with having more young voices heard and what the Hutton uh, and Colin did earlier this week with the Macaulay Lecture, where there were three climate activists actually on a platform, with people like Christiana Figueres and Nicola Sturgeon. I think it's the voice of the young, I think increasingly is um, being listened to, not enough by any means, but... Greta Thunberg has done such as she had an impact on someone like Mark Carney, uh, who is in charge of a, a, or was in charge of a huge um, financial areas as governor of the Bank of England and is now um, doing this, still having a voice at the United Nations. And I think if young people, young voices can actually have that sort of impact, we need more of that. And it needs to be pressure from the public on holding uh, politicians to account. That's democracy is supposed to be about that with public voting for politicians and then holding them to account. And I don't think we've seen enough of that. I think we've been distracted by, by other things, perhaps by our in, improving lifestyles all over the place that has, 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 we've lost that pressure from the public just at a time at which we have the tools to actually make it uh, even more more effectual uh, through the internet and through emails and through the rapid ways of communication. So I, for me, pressure from the public is really what needs to step up. And I think we've seen some of that um, in this COP and in the last few years. And um, I would plead for more of that. Thanks, Ronnie. Colin, did you want to come in? Yeah. I I mean, James Hunt Institute is all about trying to provide hard facts and scientific evidence, but the thing that really gets through is emotions. And, um, you know, we do need an emotional response to this. I mean, I, I was at an RSE event uh, where um, young activists were represented as well. And, and, and we do need to change democracy. We need to get, get them heard. 
Um, and this is where youth parliaments and uh, youth academies, all these things are really, really important to, to make a difference because it is their future. I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but it is absolutely their future. Why have they not got a say? Um, and I think people get very, other older generations get very locked in the way we did it. You know, you can't help yourself do things the way you learned how to do them when you were young. Um, so you need to be shaken up by getting into generational cooperation um, and uh, to, as a way forward, I think. But actually, as you say that, Colin, I, I remember my mother who saved ever, absolutely everything. Yeah. I mean, she was the recycler. Um, of the the and that was how I was brought up and we we kept things we reused um, a lot of things and we made our food in ways that uh, you had a roast a roast uh, dinner if you were lucky on a Sunday you had to then eat it for the rest of the week in all sorts of different formats yeah so I think there are things that we can learn by looking backwards there's just a big gap in the middle where we were going down a different trajectory. Uh, and somehow we've we've lost the plot in terms of that. So I would argue for going backwards as well as um, looking at. Yeah, and and I think that's where intergenerational effort is what's what's required. It's not that the younger generations are right and the older generations are wrong, and the ones in the middle are to blame for everything. <laughs> it's um, it's about sharing that wisdom, um, but also sharing the wisdom of simplicity that younger generations sometimes look at this. And um, you know, I think sometimes as people get older, they 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 lose that simplicity of looking at it. It's like the old um, parable with the emperor's clothes. You know, we, we, we sometimes delude ourselves about what we think is right. And um, so it's a blend of all these intergenerational attributes that we need to help solve the problems. And, and it's quite interesting to see actually how many of the protests, while there's obviously been the school strikes and there's a lot of young people, there's, there is a lot of sort of intergenerational protests as well. Yeah. You've seen the people who've come up from elsewhere to, to Glasgow that... You know, it's a very mixed group, I think. But this, I was quite interested in this whole whole notion of protest because it strikes me that protest has been a way of amplifying the science. Is that a fair assessment, do you think? I think sometimes we think it's either public opinion or science, whereas was I, I wonder if there's a bit of a coming together of protest and science here. Yeah, yeah I think it is. I mean, at the moment, it's very convenient because the, the young protesters in particular are, are saying, listen to the science. I mean, that's music to my ears. Uh, I, I love to hear that. Um uh, but at the same time, I mean, science needs to be challenging itself as well about why we've not been more effective in the past without protest. Um, and, um, you know, at the height of some of the Extinction Rebellions, uh, protest marches and some of the interactions we've had with the young activists, we were we actually wondered whether we had been doing things wrong, actually. And we have spent a lot of time telling everybody about how the world was going wrong due to climate change. Um, but we've done less interventions and actually done things to solve it. Um, so we've, we've changed our research to what we call action-based research, where we, we actually do the interventions that are required to tackle climate or nature crisis, but study them scientifically, but don't hang back and do them in controlled ways and replication. Get on and do action-based research so that we're actually testing things that might make a difference. Um, so I think science needs to challenge itself about the way we do it. And actually doing demonstration and um, at, a, at a scale that counts might get us it a bit quicker as well. Um, we're often very cautious in science because we, you know, being truthful and being rigorous is such a strong value for us that we're we're sometimes very risk averse about the way we do things. Um, so I think science needs to challenge itself as well about how we do things. Yeah, and I think the the process of science also needs to be speeded up. Uh, too often, as Collins just said, we and and we have to wait for things to be 
peer-reviewed, but there are now innovations in how that can be done more quickly. Things can be put online and then challenged online, provided people are prepared to actually make those changes. And to some extent, that's that gives a sort of liberating feeling. You're not solely responsible. There is a lot of um, pressure on scientists to make absolutely sure before they put anything into print that nobody is going to criticise it. I think we should be far more um, accepting of the fact that science, the scientific process has always been one of putting up hypotheses, testing them, changing them, and, 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 and adapting. It's been a much more adaptive process than I think we've actually... Um, said that it is. I think we also need to talk about that scientific process, explain it more to people, get people more involved in it. Uh, absolutely, we need the rigour. We should not compromise on the quality of the science. But a lot of that is about getting the design, getting the questions right that we ask at the start. And that's where there can be a lot of input uh, from people who are going to use the outputs in terms of helping to design the, the research. And I think we've seen that, haven't we, in terms of some of the response to COVID, where actually we've had to speed things up and we've had to um, progress when actually we haven't known absolutely everything and the evidence has been uh, been evolving. And I know certainly from the Data Evidence and Science Working Group of the, of the RSC uh, COVID Commission is actually how do we take some of that learning and retain some of that um, flexibility and and um, speed while still, as, as Maggie says, being absolutely clear on the, on the rigour and robustness of evidence. I mean, turning maybe back to back to Scotland and, and back to land use specifically, um, how do you think that land use in Scotland needs to change over, over the coming years in order to, to address climate change? And where do you think we're making good progress and, and, and where do we need to up our game? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the peatland restoration is a good way to go, I think, um, provided that there is monitoring alongside it. So, so the government has put money into peatland restoration, but as we started off on this conversation, the whole diversity. So one what you do in one peatland is not exactly the same as what you would do to restore another peatland because the damage is different. And so having, I would advocate that we need, um, as Colin just mentioned, action-based research alongside that to make sure that what we're doing with peatland restoration is having the desired output and is not uh, doing something which we might regret. Because I think that there's a lot of talk about tree planting, and tree planting is good, yes, but it shouldn't just be about the numbers. It's absolutely key that we're planting the right species. It's key that they're planted in the right places. We should not be going and digging up peatland to put in a tree, um, because that peatland should be uh, kept covered over and, and not, not have the trees in it. So, so we need to have much closer, as we talked earlier about that sort of dialogue, we need to have more conversations between the people that are actually implementing some of these things and also the scientists who know what works where to some extent and just have that dialogue and nobody's sort of thinking they know what all the answers are. So again, back to um, learning by doing one of the current phrases in much of this. Thanks, Maggie. And Colin, what about, about for you? Where, where do you think we're making good progress and, and where do we need to change? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the Maggie's right. There's great progress in terms of the peatland action plans and um, the ambition there. We, we need to do it faster. We need to do it, more of it. Um, Maggie's also right about some of the risks there. I mean, our, our climate is changing. We need to be sure that what we do today is going to survive in the future. But we actually do have uh, a richness of data and understanding around this to actually try and make the right decisions make sure that we restore the right peatlands, 
put the right tree in the right place. But people need to understand that that data is there and it is usable to help them make the right decisions. So there's, there's lots of progress there. I think in agriculture, which is, uh, is, is less clear what the direction of travel is. You know, we don't see necessarily clear sight of where that needs to go. And um, we need to have that kind of big conversation as politicians sometimes call about what kind of agriculture do we actually want. And that, that can be informed by the external context. I mean, the, the world uh, consumers want to know that the food they eat protects nature and reduces greenhouse gas emissions. Scotland's in a fantastic place to take advantage of that. Yeah, we, we've got livestock systems which do produce greenhouse gases, but compared to feedlots in the Americas, their greenhouse gas footprint is much, much lower. So why don't we make a, a merit out of that and move towards much more nature-based farming, where it's much more sustainable farming, because actually it's going to be internationally competitive in the future. Um, and that will then give a better livelihood to our farmers. So we need to start talking that through what it would actually look like and what are the changes we need to make. But as much as there's good things happen, none of it's happening fast enough or to enough extent. You know, and one of the hardest things I, I find getting across to people is that you genuinely might only have 10 years you know, to get this right. Uh, and then we're going to have all sorts of climate breakdown, which is going to, it doesn't matter what you do, it's not going to work. Um, so getting the urgency across to people is the hardest thing at the moment. We need even more money being put into people in restoration, more, more trees of the right type in the right place, um, and, and a common vision about what we're trying to achieve with our, our, our land in Scotland. So broadening out then from a, a Scotland perspective to a more global one, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're recording this uh, during COP. Um, if you could make one wish, each of you, I'm being generous, you can each have a wish. Um, what outcome would you wish to, to see from that meeting or indeed from what follows from it? Maggie, what about for you? I think what I'd really like to see is a change of mindsets, a realisation uh, amongst the sectors with the biggest footprints that actually it's in their own interest to do something now. It's only going to be bad if they keep trying to keep things as they are in the short term then the long-term negative consequences will be so much worse. And I think if we could just get some of those really big sectors, and I think we do see movement in them. I think the oil and gas sector has shown uh, that it recognises it needs to change, that it has made some of those contributions. I just like that magnified by car. So everybody going home, not quite that they get the horse and cart and take that back to home, but people flying back um, from, from COP within the UK, that one does make me despair that mindsets haven't changed yet, but they need to. And I hope they push in that direction. That's what I'd like to see, but not just amongst the politicians, amongst everybody. Maggie and Colin. Yeah, I'm going to cheat because I like Maggie's one. And, uh, and you know, part of that is is about, I mean, our problems are all about overconsumption. And if people could realise that you should only eat and drink and use what you need rather than what you want, the world wouldn't be where we are. But I think if there was one single thing that could come out of COP for me, and I, I probably won't get this, it would be an agreement around a border carbon tax. So if goods coming across borders were imported and exported in a level playing field where you paid a carbon tax, that, that would that would really drive everybody to lower greenhouse gas emissions. It's, uh, it's, taxes or tariffs are never seen as being popular with some people. And you have to be careful that they're fair across an international dimension as well. But I think that could make a big difference. And um, I'd, be, I'd be very keen to see some sort of border amendment tariff or carbon tax that, on goods to 
try and make people think twice about how much uh, carbon they're, they're using when they're producing things. We'll keep our fingers crossed to see what comes out of, of COP in the, over the coming week. Uh, Maggie and Colin, thank you so much for giving us your time today and sharing your expertise on land use and climate change. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find previous Tea and Talk episodes on our website, rsc.org.uk, or you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. For our latest news, details of events and activities, search for the Royal Society of Edinburgh on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube.